0: Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akish Rafi. Today is May 4th, 2020. We're talking today with Catherine Oliverius, who's a historian at Stanford University. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You've studied 19th century America, and you've been interested in the antebellum South, in the greater Caribbean, in slavery and disease, and you work to understand how the yellow fever epidemic of the 19th century disrupted society in those areas. When you look at the current COVID 19 epidemic through the lens of your work, what do you see? Oh, there are similarities all over the place. So maybe I'll describe my work first. So, my book, Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom, coming out next year. It's about how yellow fever, which is a mosquito-borne flavivirus, virus, played an integral and overlooked role as the American Deep South transformed from a French colonial backwater in the 18th century to the heart of America's slave and cotton kingdoms by the 19th. In the sixth decades between the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 and the Civil War in 1861, New Orleans experienced 22 full-blown summertime yellow fever epidemics, and these killed about 150,000 people in New Orleans alone during these six decades. American cities connected to New Orleans by the Gulf of Mexico or the Mississippi River, so Natchez, Galveston, Biloxi, Pensacola, Mobile, and Vicksburg also suffered mightily, adding perhaps another 150,000 people to the death toll. In 1853, in fact, New Orleans suffered its worst epidemic, with about 12,000 people dying in three months, making it one of the worst natural disasters and American history. And after the Civil War, the virus returned with a vengeance moving further, faster into the American interior, to Memphis and St. Louis, places that had been considered safe from what was called Bronze John, Yellow Fever, before railroads became the supervectors of yellow fever-carrying mosquitoes. Now, disease had proved itself to be an existential crisis for the U.S. during Louisiana's territorial period, so between 1803 and 1812. And during this period, it killed thousands of American politicians and fortune seekers from New England, people who were locally dubbed strangers. And in fact, Yellow fever was so crippling to the fledgling American government that its repeated visitations probably delayed Louisiana's ascension to statehood by at least three years. Simply, you can't have a functioning court system if all the judges keep dying, and you can't produce institutional resilience or create knowledge in the governor's office or customs house that each person brought in to fill dead man's shoes, as it were, has to reinvent the wheel. But the disease situation worsened considerably during the antebellum period as immunologically naive people, both black and white and free and forced, flooded into the southwest to build the cotton kingdom. With mass immigration came crowd diseases like cholera, plague, Influenza, consumption, and typhoid. But yellow fever proved to be New Orleans' most lethal tyrant, routinely eclipsing all other causes of death when it struck, doubling or even tripling the city's already high average annual death rate. Now, yellow fever was considered a stranger's disease, strongly associated with unacclimated white immigrants from the North and from Europe, especially from Ireland and Germany, and these immigrants would have been escaping the Irish potato famine, for example, or political upheaval in the German states. And so strong was this association between so-called strangers and yellow fever that when charity hospital administrators yelled out name, age, and country to approaching patients, an answer of Mahoney or Bruns would land that person directly in the yellow fever ward with no further consultation. Foreigners did face particularly grim odds, it seems. White American-born migrants died from yellow fever at four times the creole rate, and creole at this time means people that were born and raised in Louisiana. British and French migrants died at 10 times the creole rate, and Irish and German migrants at 20 times the rate. In fact, in total mortality terms, yellow fever accounted for 20% of all deaths among native Orleanians, but between 75 to 90% of deaths among migrants. Thus, while as many as eight Orleanians died per hundred annually, eight percent, making New Orleans America's deadliest city by far and on par with Havana. Deaths could reach 20 or even 30% in certain immigrant neighborhoods. So these are big, big, big numbers made all the more terrifying because people knew so little about this disease's sort of etiology. There was no cure, no inoculation, no conclusive evidence of disease transmission, no confirmation as to whether it was contagious or miasmatic and no satisfactory explanation for why it killed some while leaving others unaffected. And it was, moreover, a sudden and very horrible way to die, with victims oozing blood through their external orifices and then vomiting up at the end this partly coagulated blood that was roughly the consistency and color of coffee grounds. It was such a painful death that even pious victims screamed profanities as the end neared. Now, in the 19th century, about half of all yellow fever victims died. The other half became acclimated or immune for life. Now, in this highly lethal city essential to the cotton, sugar, and enslaved industries, I argue that an invisible epidemiological hierarchy came to commingle with and exacerbate the Caribbean-esque racial hierarchy of whites, free blacks, and enslaved people. In this invisible epidemiological hierarchy, acclimated citizens stood atop the social ladder. Those yellow fever survivors, so people who had faced the disease and survived. And these acclimated citizens were followed by so-called unacclimated strangers, those people awaiting their brush with yellow fever, sort of in this limbo. And those unacclimated strangers were followed by the dead. Those surviving this disease was simply a matter of epidemiological luck, Antebellum Orlinians came to explain why some people lived and some people died in moral terms. Those who survived had rolled the epidemiological dice and now could establish him or herself as a legitimate and permanent player in the cotton kingdom. Those who died were damned, weak, effeminate, and unworthy. Acclamation was locally called the baptism of citizenship, a credential or a passport to success. All of the richest and most powerful white men in New Orleans incorporated tales of their successful acclamations into their genesis stories, what they saw as evidence, allegedly, that they had been sanctioned by this fatal environment and by God for entrepreneurship. And all white immigrants who survived described acclamation like being reborn, that, quote, victory had perched upon their banner. For enslaved black people, yellow fever justified increased, not decreased, discrimination and subjugation. Doctors, pro-slavery thinkers, and politicians all echoed the idea that all Black people were naturally resistant to yellow fever. This was not true. There is no epidemiological basis for this idea. But, true or not, the theory of Black inherited immunity provided an immensely useful justification for widespread racial slavery, as naturally immune Black people, in this logic, could safely work in spaces that would otherwise kill white people. Some people even called racial slavery humanitarian on this basis, as it protected white lives from this dreaded disease. But at the same time, as slaveholders insisted that enslaved people were naturally immune, no slaveholder would purchase an unacclimated slave. And the word acclimation, like many other descriptions, became intensely marketable in this slave market. And this description of acclimation or acclimated slave essentially reduced a person's past suffering with this disease into a marketable asset. In fact, acclimated slaves sold for between 25 and 50% more, with their hard-earned immunity translating into increased social and economic capital for white owners. Now, immunity to yellow fever, ill-understood in the 19th century, was euphemized with phrases like acclimation or seasoning or creolization. Now, acclimation meant surviving yellow fever, but to have what I call immunocapital, Orwinians had to convince others of their immunity. So immunity was and is an objective biological reality, but before vaccination or diagnostic blood testing, it was invisible and impossible to verify. It was thus subjective and performative, a matter of faith as much as fact. But whether real or imagined, immunity mattered for white people. Unacclimated white people were considered unemployable, as one German immigrant named Gustav Dresel lamented in the 1830s, quote, I looked around in vain for a position as a bookkeeper, but to engage a young man who was not acclimated would be a bad speculation. Life insurers rejected unacclimated applicants outright or else charged a hefty climate premium. If you were white, immunity status impacted where you lived, how much you earned, and your ability to get credit. Some unacclimated men found they could not even get married as Creole fathers would not let their daughters socialize with unacclimated men lest he die and she be left heartbroken. Immunity, in fact, was so important that even the president of the New Orleans Board of Health suggested in 1841 that, quote, the value of acclimation is worth the risk. Now, in a society of such values, it is perhaps no wonder that people actively sought sickness. I've seen examples of people jumping into beds just after their friends died. Rolling around in their bedsheets, hoping to get sick. Some people would even eat black vomit or inject it into their bloodstreams. Some people huddled together in cramped dwellings, the sort of antebellum forerunners to chickenpox parties, except much, much deadlier. That people were willing to risk their lives to acquire immunity tells us something very important about this society, a place where cotton was expensive, but life was cheap. Now, seizing on this logic of immunocapital, 19th-century Orleanians, especially the 19-year-old boys, were very good at rationalizing away statistics. The cold facts of disease risk, that half of all victims would die, mattered little. The myth of immunological reward proved far more powerful. Thus, while epidemics rage, young men routinely touted aspirational mantras about human agency over disease, insisting that yellow fever was a mild ailment, boasting that they had never enjoyed better health and reassuring family far away that they would succeed where others had failed such optimism may have been self-delusional, but most unacclimated white migrants bought into amino capital and the hierarchy it created, believing that the system would benefit them eventually. After all, immunological discrimination was just one more form of bias in a city premised on inequality. Now, yellow fever did not make the South into a slave society, but it certainly widened the divide between rich and poor. High mortality, it turns out, was economically profitable for New Orleans' most powerful citizens because yellow fever kept wage workers insecure and so unable to bargain effectively. It's no surprise, then, that city politicians proved unwilling to spend tax money on sanitation and quarantine efforts and instead argued that the best solution to yellow fever was, paradoxically, more yellow fever. Water pumps, sanitation, and quarantines only delayed the inevitable. That put the burden on the working classes to get acclimated, not on the rich and powerful to invest in safety net infrastructure. So if we fast forward to today and to our own pandemic of COVID-19, an event that has radically changed all of our lives, made some of us sick, and has warped the passage of time itself to move like very stressful molasses. Now, yellow fever in the 19th century, of course, was far more lethal than COVID-19. But some of the parallels that I see to today's coronavirus pandemic are striking. The big similarity is to deal with this recent discussion of immunity passports. With an estimated 20% and more of Americans out of work, there's been intense pressure for governors to reopen their states for business and to get people back to work. Now, Germany, Italy, Chile, and Britain are all toying with notions of immunity passports, proof that a person has beaten COVID that would allow people with antibodies to go back to work faster. The World Health Organization has cautioned against such passports on scientific grounds. That there is currently not enough evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 are immune to a second infection. But even if the science is shaky, states, nations, and cities are sort of pressing on with this concept regardless. And I would stress caution. We've already seen how today's COVID-19 pandemic hasn't so much created inequalities as it has exacerbated those already there. Viruses don't discriminate by social class or by race. They don't think after all. And yet, the impacts of this virus in the U.S. are already deeply discriminatory because humans make them so. There is already massive racial, economic, and geographic inequality in exposure, testing, and treatment to this virus. And we must work to prevent the establishment of that invisible hierarchy where we elevate the immune and shame the vulnerable and bar them from participation in normal society. I think it'd be very socially destructive if we end up with a sort of two-tier system of the haves with immunity able to go out and participate in normal life and the have-nots without immunity who have to wait at home for months, maybe years, until we develop a vaccine. Now, if immunity becomes a prerequisite for employment, for instance, I fear that we will start to see people make choices that they should never have to make where people who are already in desperate straits will deliberately try to get sick in order to get and keep jobs, to support their families and put food on their tables. And this could lead to a kind of wild west of widespread, impossible to contain infection, as well as a lot of individual suffering. In sum, the most vulnerable people in our society cannot be punished twice over, first by their circumstance and then by the disease. We've been there before and we certainly do not want to go back to that. Thank you for sharing your work and your perspectives on the current epidemic with us. My pleasure, thank you. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Jessica Linker, a Program Coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.